Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, March 4th, we're studying Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 21. Despite the opposition of the ruler of the synagogue, Jesus heals a woman on the Sabbath before he teaches in two short parables concerning the kingdom of God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor John Walla. Pastor Walla serves at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bismarck, North Dakota. Pastor Walla, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little bit of context. We're still in the beginning parts of Luke 13. What should we know about the context in the Gospel of Luke that will help us with the text we've got today? So, there is a growing opposition uh, to Jesus that we're going to obviously see in this ruler of the synagogue and his cronies, whoever is with him, uh, the adversaries of Jesus. And that has uh, come out over the last couple chapters as Jesus has uh, taught about uh, woe, to the, woe of, uh, to the Pharisees, watch out for them, uh, woe to the lawyers um, and uh, those who are hypocrites. And Um, This is very much going to come out in our text for today. There's also, um, we're in the section after chapter 9, where Jesus has set his face for Jerusalem. And uh, there is an increased uh, intensity for uh, repentance and believing in the gospel and uh, seeing that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. And uh, so we'll see that He's the Lord of the Sabbath, uh, Lord over demons, uh, that he is the king who brings the kingdom and is on his way to the cross for us and for our forgiveness. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at this text then. Again, we're in Luke 13, verses 10 through 21 this morning. Now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. 
That's our text for today. That's Luke 13, verses 10 to 21. So, Pastor Walla, we find Jesus, he, again, as you mentioned, he's on his journey to Jerusalem. His face is set, and that's the way he's traveling. He goes to a synagogue on the Sabbath. We've seen him do this before. There was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. Let's let's start with Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Just help us with that scene and everything that brings to mind, the information we need to know to understand this setting. Sure. So, Sabbath day um, is this day that uh, we see a pattern in Jesus' life uh, several different times already. This has come up that uh, Jesus is uh, seeing this day as a day to be there in the synagogue uh, to be worshiping and uh, where he, as sort of this visiting rabbi, is given the opportunity to teach. So we heard that back in chapter four, he was in his hometown of Nazareth. And uh, then the next Sabbath, he was in Capernaum. And uh, so this is the pattern, and uh, it's just kind of this fitting thing for us to hear. Um, It's the Sabbath, and where should we find Jesus? Well, of course, he's in the synagogue, and he's teaching. Um, So that is a very natural thing. That doesn't catch our eye right away, uh, necessarily, um, until Luke actually gives us this word, behold, and all of a sudden directs our eyes to uh, this this woman with the disabling spirit. So and keep going, keep going. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just no, going to say the, the woman with the disabling spirit for eighteen years. It when I when I read this at first, it and it's not clear I think until later in the text. But I hear a woman with disabling spirit, and I'm thinking she's sick. But this disabling spirit, we're actually talking about demon possession here. Yeah, there is uh, what you just described is. What I saw as I read through lots of different commentaries and uh, also what I thought as I read through this, too, of what is this? Uh, There are certain uh, words and phrases in this text early on that might just suggest this is just some ailment that this woman has um, that makes her bent over. Um, But Jesus does make it very clear in verse 16 um, that this is actually Satan who has bound her. And um, the, the very word spirit uh, also starts to direct us that this is more than just um, some natural or physical uh, result of the fall into sin. So um, thinking about demon possession, um, there's, there's several different, even just paging through Luke's gospel itself, There's different ways that demons seem to give physical or mental or even uh, verbal ailments, uh, verbal in in a spiritual sense, actually. So the first one actually comes in chapter four when um, there is a demon that possesses this man who all of a sudden begins taunting Jesus and uh, kind of in this uh, belligerent way says, ha, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus uh, commands the demon to be quiet and then uh, releases uh, the one who is possessed uh, of the demon. And paging over to chapter eight, there's the legion of demons. This is uh, the man on the other side of the, the Sea of Galilee. And that group of demons had caused him to be in isolation, uh, living in the caves. Um, he was naked. Um, He had this extreme strength, could break his chains and bonds. 
Um, the next chapter, chapter nine, a man brings his son with a, an unclean spirit, and that was causing his son to convulse and foam at the mouth and uh, to cry out. And uh, it even says he was just shattered by this spirit. And then finally, uh, one other one in chapter 11, uh, a demon causes a man to be mute. So we have uh, one who is mute, one who is taunting Jesus, one who's convulsing, uh, one who's got this superhuman strength and is also isolated. And now finally in chapter 13, we have one who is um, disabled, uh, who's, who's broken, bent over because of this demon. So, I mean, putting all those together, and it is, when you stop and, and think about all these cases of demon possession in the Gospel of Luke, just, just alone, there's a, a wide variety of the way it manifests itself. What, what does all that have to say about the way that, that Satan attacks people and the way it manifests it? That's a good question. Um, ultimately, there is a goodness to God's creation that uh, Satan would have us not be able to see or enjoy, um, that he would uh, rip away uh, all goodness, and ultimately with his attempts to uh, entirely destroy us, uh, that Satan from the beginning has been a murderer, and um, all that is God's and all that um, is the goodness of God, and that would cause us to praise him and rejoice in him, uh, instead, the Lord, uh, Satan would have us uh, despise the Lord and lose our hope in the Lord and, and despair thus. So uh, we see this manifesting, obviously, in all these very different ways, but all with that same common thing um, of bringing this hopelessness and uh, ultimate frustration. So we, with, with all of creation, as Romans 8 says, we groan under this uh, this broken world, waiting for the day that Jesus would return and set us free. And that uh, leads very much into then this um, being set free in the text, uh, that we are all uh, fighting against this enemy, uh, this enemy uh, of Satan, and feeling this in this broken world, and also within our own selves, uh, fighting against the enemy of sin. And Jesus has come to set us free. Uh, that Jesus setting free, that being the language that that he uses here, I think, and I think it's in the case that you brought up from chapter 11 with the, yeah, when, when they have the demon that makes the man mute, one of the things that comes up right in the aftermath of that is that the people, some of them, are accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Right. And, and Jesus makes the point Look, if, if you've got a strong man and you, you're going to rob him, someone stronger has to come along, tie up that strong man, and then plunder the possessions. And, and that's, I think, what we're seeing Jesus doing here. This woman has been bound by Satan. He's too strong for her to fight. And so here comes Jesus as the stronger one to now set her free. He's, I mean... Yeah, and that uh, that goes all the way back, I think, to to what happens in Luke chapter four. Not only in the the demon possessed man that Jesus helps there, but his opening sermon in Nazareth, where he talks about setting prisoners free. That's yes. what that's what Jesus is doing here. Go ahead. Right on. Yeah, I was going to bring up that text um, also. Um, so two things that I wanted to mention there. One uh, that uh, mute 
the demon that caused the, the man to be mute in chapter 11, with the strong man uh, being uh, taken over by the stronger one, Jesus ends up saying, um, you know, you're saying that, that it's by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that I'm casting out demons. But he says, that doesn't make any sense. And he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And um, I love the the way that he just kind of does the mic drop. And that's very much like the chapter four text where he's in Nazareth. He's given the scroll of Isaiah to read. Um, he uh, reads what we now know as chapter 61 and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he's anointed me to set the captives free. And uh, after reading the text, uh, Jesus sits down, everyone looks at him and he says, this just happened. Uh, this prophecy has just been fu fulfilled in your hearing. And uh, again, the mic drop, um, yeah. this is the king and the kingdom of God is now right here in Jesus. And so we're seeing that play out again here in particular in this synagogue on this Sabbath. We don't know precisely where Jesus is. He's somewhere between Galilee and Jerusalem because he's he's on his way. He frees this woman. And I think the, well, and he does this by laying hands on her. She immediately, she stands up. The disability that this demon was causing is gone. And I think this ties, when we were talking about, you know, the way Satan attacks and how this manifests itself, he does so against God's good creation. And, and here you see Jesus freeing this woman, bringing that new creation, that recreation to this woman by freeing her from Satan and his grip. And and suddenly the conversation now turns to this matter of, of the Sabbath day. And I, I think that these things are related. The fact that Jesus is doing the work of new creation, he's doing on the Sabbath— but there's this misunderstanding about the Sabbath. The, the conflict, at least in this text, centers on whether or not this is an okay thing to do on the Sabbath. And that's where the, this ruler of the synagogue is going to stand up and become indignant. Uh, before we, I guess, look at particularly what, what his problem is, let's talk a little bit about the Sabbath, the background, why this is an, even an issue. What, what's the background information on the Sabbath that we need to understand to, to know what's going on here? Sure. There are so many misconceptions uh, regarding the Sabbath, not only in that day, but also um, today yet. Um, so at the time, there was the question of, okay, uh, what did the Torah tell us about uh, the Sabbath? And then what was the oral tradition uh, passed down through the years, uh, not from the Bible itself, but um, extra-biblical uh, traditions that the Jews had. And uh, especially for us as, as readers today, some of that can be pretty foreign for us and trying to, to figure out, so are they getting mad at Jesus because he broke uh, a law given by God? Is this a man-made law? Um, what is this? And, and even so, is this a, an, the proper understanding or is this a misunderstanding? So with the Sabbath, we turn all the way back um, initially to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, in chapter 1, six days of creation, God has created all things. And we get to Genesis 2 verse 1 and it says that God has finished his creation. Everything is done and that on the seventh day, uh, God rested. And um, so hearing that first statement, God was finished 
is very important for also understanding his rest, that it's not that God was oh, so tired. Oh, man, that was a whole lot of work. Made the whole world in six days. Now I got to rest. I'm, I'm just exhausted. And Isaiah 40, uh, Isaiah chapter 40 helps us to see this where we're told um, he's the everlasting, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint. Uh, he does not faint or grow weary. And so it's not that God was tired and rested. Um, it's that um, he's finished and rested. And thus he sets that seventh day apart and uh, makes it holy. And I was thinking about how Luther explains in the Lord's Prayer um, God's name and um, really those first several petitions of the Lord's Prayer where he says God's name is certainly holy in itself, but we pray that it would be kept holy among us also. And it's done so by the pure teaching of God's word. And so it's not until Exodus chapter 20 that the Sabbath is known as a commandment of the Lord. Um, what we in the Lutheran church uh, refer to as the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Um, some of the other Protestants have a numbering of the commandments where they'll call it uh, commandment number four. Um, but the Sabbath is actually referred to by name before the commandment is given, um, first in the rest way back in Genesis, but also uh, when the, the manna is given back in Exodus 16. People are coming out. They've just crossed the Red Sea. They start grumbling, saying, here we are in the wilderness. We have no food. What are we going to do? We wished we were back in Egypt. And God provides manna for them and in the instructions tells them six days you, you collect, uh, but not on the seventh day. Um, that is to be a Sabbath for you. Um, all of that is the background and, uh, and this rest that is commanded for the people. And what ends up bringing a little bit of the, the uh confusion initially, but can bring clarity when we start to understand is that there is moral law in the Old Testament that um, leads into the New Testament is eternal. It's built into the way that God has created all things, the moral law. And then there is ceremonial law and that applying specifically to uh, this chosen nation, the Israelites. And uh so navigating between, uh, well, why do we keep this law, but not this law anymore, um, that the ceremonial laws were for them, but also served a very clear purpose as a foreshadowing of Christ, pointing ahead to him um, who is Israel embodied in one, um, standing in the place of not just uh, the bloodline of Israel, but all of Israel, uh, all those who would believe. And uh, so. Christ comes, and it, we'll unpack this in just a minute, um, that he ends up becoming uh, the Sabbath. Um, he is the one that it, this is fulfilled in for us. So before we get to the, the fulfillment of the Sabbath in Christ, then, with that background of the creation of the Sabbath in Genesis 2, and then the way that that commandment is, is laid down in the Old Testament, particularly in Exodus 20, it's repeated in Deuteronomy 5, and there are other there are other regulations in the Old Testament around the Sabbath day that do define some of the things you, you can and can't do. 
that gets expanded upon into the day of Jesus, where do, where does some of that misunderstanding, that confusion start for the specifically this ruler of the synagogue here in Luke 13? So it's likely that uh, this ruler is operating off of uh, the oral tradition, uh, the Mishnah. And uh, this is something that um, over the years, uh, starting out with really good intentions, as um, most false teachings end up starting with, um, that there is an attempt to try to protect God's law. Okay, God said that we're not supposed to work on this day. We're supposed to rest on this day. So um, we don't want to break this commandment. So let's make sure that we don't even get close to working. So what's defined as work and where um, a few things are listed in uh, the Levitical laws, that there is much, much more that is added that we would just call human tradition. Um, And uh, out of a good intention to start with, hedging the law, so to say, trying to keep us from even getting close to breaking it. And apparently, um, this ruler of the synagogue um, had an understanding that healing was a breaking of uh, the work laws, uh, of the Sabbath laws, saying, no, you can't actually do that. So um, there's, there is no law from the Old Testament against healing on the Sabbath. This is clearly uh, from outside of uh, God's given law about the Sabbath and uh, apparently comes from some um, man-made law or misunderstanding of it. It it strikes me, in particular, with the way the ruler of the synagogue approaches the situation. Luke tells us that he's indignant at what Jesus had done, but instead of addressing Jesus, he actually addresses the people, and he, he it's like he's scolding this woman and then everyone around her for coming to be healed on the Sabbath, rather than, it, I don't know that there's much more to, to this than just, it, it strikes me that he's, he's pretty cowardly. He, he won't call Jesus out on what he did. He calls the people out for, hey, what are you thinking coming to be healed on the Sabbath? That's not, that's not what this is for. You can come be healed on six days. It, it, it just strikes me as really cowardly, hypocritical, which I think is what Jesus calls him, that, that he would attack and he would approach the situation this way. Rather than calling out Jesus for being a false teacher, which I would think is what he's thinking, he, he goes after the people. And it just, boy, I mean, it really shows how, how bad false teaching is when it, it leads them to attack the people who are in need of the healing, that's who Jesus is helping. And this ruler of synagogue has just totally got it backwards. Yeah, I noticed that too. And I think that uh, where that may even tie in more with this is that he tries to uh, shame Jesus and shame this woman indirectly, kind of this passive aggressive way of, of dealing with it. Um, standing up and yeah, this strong word, indignant. Um, you can just feel the emotion, this this bitterness that he has as he stands up and um, just totally uh, self-absorbed as as he uh, thinks about this. And what what I mean by that is that um, he's really only thinking about himself. Um, this is going to look bad on me. Um, what if the Pharisees end up coming at me and, and questioning, why did you let him do that on a Sabbath day? And uh, so he's just mad. He's, he's worried about himself. And so uh, he ends up standing up and um, saying, this is going to look so bad for me. I'm going to call you guys out. Yeah. 
and um, doesn't address Jesus, doesn't address the woman, but definitely um, means ill towards them. Um, and so he can't see that this is something that is needed. He can't see uh, mercy and care for this woman. Um, he can't see the, the beautiful and incredible thing that has been done for her. And so um, he, he turns this into an attempt to shame them out of this, this good and God-pleasing thing that has been done. And I mean, it does, I think it represents a, a complete misunderstanding of the Sabbath to, to use the language that Jesus does elsewhere, that the, the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. This, this ruler of synagogue seems to have that second understanding of man being created for the Sabbath rather than the way that God intended it, a gift of, of rest, a gift of, of recognizing, hey, you didn't create yourself so you can rest. You didn't redeem yourself so you can rest on, on the Sabbath. Life isn't about you and your work. It's about what God has done for you and his work for you. And so you can rest on this day. I mean, this guy's got it all backwards. So like, you're, what do you mean you're here on the Sabbath to be healed? Well, where else? What else would I be doing on the Sabbath other than right. letting God heal me? I mean, th- he's just got it all all backwards here. He truly does. Yeah, uh, that text of um, when Jesus, this is in Mark chapter 2, uh, that Jesus ends up uh, saying, well, that the Sabbath was not made for um, us to just have this this law made for us. Um, no, instead, it is, um, it's given as a gift for us rather than man actually uh, being created just to, to keep the Sabbath. So I, I was trying to figure out, well, how do we, how do we understand this? That, well, man was made on the sixth day and uh, that the Sabbath was then um, given uh, after that. It's not that God made the Sabbath first and then said, boy, if, if only I had somebody to keep this. Um, that he said, I'm going to give this great gift to that which I've made uh, to uh, my creation. And um, just looking at Isaiah chapter 58, um, refers to the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath holy, honoring it. And it says, um, if you honor it, then you shall take delight in the Lord. I'll make you ride on the heights of the earth. I'll feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so thinking about delighting in the Lord, that makes us go straight to Psalm 119 and delighting in the the word of the Lord. And to be fed and to have the word set before us, this directs us straight to what God has now fulfilled for us in Christ, that He calls us to come and to be fed uh, by his word, by his sacraments, uh, to hear his word and receive the forgiveness of our sins. Um, So all of this then does lead toward this being fulfilled in Christ. And we will pick up that fulfillment in Christ on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Luke 13 with Pastor John Walla. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, March 4th. We are studying Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 21 with Pastor John Walla. He serves at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bismarck, North Dakota. Pastor Walla, prior to the break, we left off with Jesus being the fulfillment of the Sabbath, really of, of all the Old Testament. How do we see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Sabbath? How does that apply to this text? It really is the key to unlocking this text and, uh, and much of um, the Gospels and our now life as the Christian church. So as we think about all of this, uh, the Sabbath being fulfilled in Christ and uh, before the break talking about uh, the Sabbath being fed by the Lord, hearing his word, receiving forgiveness of our sins, think about how... Um, in the Old Testament, there was the Passover, and the Passover was spoken of by the Lord as being an eternal ordinance, one that would be kept forever. And yet, when Christ comes, we find out, well, he's the way that this is kept forever. He is the Passover lamb, and he is the one by whose blood we are marked and spared from death, and he establishes the new covenant in his blood, and that is what forgives us of our sins. And so also then with the Sabbath, that the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. He is our Sabbath rest. He's the one that invites us, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke. It's easy and you will have rest for your soul. So think back to Genesis one more time. Genesis six days, God creates everything. And then he says, it's finished. And on the seventh day, he rests. So now when Jesus on the sixth day, on Friday, dies, he says on the cross, it is finished. And by that, stating that everything has been fulfilled. He has come and kept the law perfectly. He has paid for our sins. He suffered the entire wrath of God on our behalf. And it is complete. He is the full satisfaction for us. And so he says it's finished. And on the seventh day, Saturday, he's resting. He's in the tomb. And then on the next day, we now know this as the eighth day, not the first day of the week, but the eighth day of the week, because it's a new creation. Jesus is raised from the dead. And this starts the new creation and even the new Sabbath. The new Sabbath, which is now all found in Christ. He is our rest. He is the one that we worship. He is the one that we receive by faith. He is the one that through whom we anticipate our eternal rest on the last day. And so Colossians 2 describes all of these Old Testament uh, rituals and ceremonies and laws being fulfilled in Christ. It says these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
So with, so, with that background yeah, then, well, yeah, with, with that background, Christ being the fulfillment of the Sabbath and, and how that comes into Colossians 2, and we see that throughout the New Testament, how does that tie into the Lord's answer to the synagogue ruler in verses 15 and 16? Yeah, Jesus, um, of course, is tried to be shamed by this uh, ruler. Uh, why did you come this day? Plenty of other days to be healed. And Jesus responds, and uh, for as indignant as the ruler was, uh, we hear the same um, kind of animosity coming from the Lord in his defense of what he's done, of who he is, and also of this woman. Um, He calls the ruler, but this is in the plural, he says, you hypocrites. Um, So ruler and um, perhaps whoever his cronies are in the background, uh, the Pharisees, the scribes um, often are the ones that are against Jesus. Jesus responds, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And so Jesus um, enters into what we uh, could call a cumulative argument um, or a lesser than greater argument where he compares these animals and he says, you do this for animals. But here is this woman, and not just any woman, here is this daughter of Abraham. And um, here is this one who's not just tied up to a manger and has food but needs to be let out to get water. But here's a woman who's been bound by the cruelty of Satan. And not just one day, like this animal waiting to be watered, but for 18 years she has been. And so laying this argument out, if this, then why not this? Then he concludes with the question, which begs the answer of yes. Um, He says, ought not this woman be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Of course, yes, yes, she should be. And yes, this is the great fulfillment of what Jesus has come to do to release us from captivity. Yeah, I mean, yes, the answer to Jesus' question is, of course, this woman should be, and particularly on the Sabbath day. I think with the with what you're saying about the Sabbath being fulfilled in Jesus, it's particularly important or particularly proper, meet right and salutary, as we might say, that this woman would be healed on the Sabbath day. That's that's what God has come to do. That's what Christ is here to do: is to release his people from the bonds of Satan and to bring this new creation. What better day than the Sabbath to bring it about? Now, there's a reaction that Luke tells us about. On the one hand, the adversaries are put to shame. On the other hand, the, all the people are rejoicing at the glorious things that are being done by Jesus. Take us into this twofold reaction on either side. Yeah, the shame of those that are opposed to Jesus here. Um, the ruler, obviously, and again, whoever else is with him, uh, thinking that Jesus has done something wrong here. Um, they are shamed by his response. Uh, shame um, has with it this public embarrassment um, that you are exposed for um, being two-faced, being a hypocrite, or not being a man of your word. And so on the one hand, uh, this man um, trying to, you know, if we put the best construction on it, trying to keep the law as best as he can, trying to keep good order in his synagogue that he's been placed as ruler over, and yet totally not getting it and uh, being shamed for his lack of understanding, um, but um, 
probably more likely um, also because of his unbelief, um, his just uh, flat out rejection of Jesus as uh, the one who has done this miracle and who clearly is the Lord. The Pharisees, um, they've they've had this issue all along. Um, it seems like not all the Pharisees are entirely opposed to Jesus. In fact, um, just after this in chapter 13, uh, some of the Pharisees are going to come and try to warn Jesus. Um, we maybe assume that they're trying to do something good for him, spare his life. Herod wants to kill you. Get out of here. Um, but most of the time, the Pharisees seem to just be having such a difficult time understanding um, and uh, trying to, to see and yet are blind, um, trying to, uh, to catch Jesus, trying to test him, see if he's going to uh, do something that they can catch him in. The Pharisees and scribes have been shamed before this. This isn't, you know, kind of the first time. Um, back in chapter 11, Jesus didn't wash before dinner. They start complaining and Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees. Um, and that resulted in them lying in wait for him, trying to catch him in something that he might say. Um, but the shame here, um, I think that we can maybe even see um, as all of these these recent things in in Luke uh, leading up to today's reading kind of been pointing us towards being ready for the day, uh, the day of, of judgment, the day of Christ's return, uh, of repenting now, not later, um, that this shame that they have right now is a foreshadowing of the shame of the unbelievers on the last day, of the, the gnashing of teeth, of the gritting and saying, oh, here I am. I, I'm caught in what I was doing. Um, either I either I walked as though I um, was an unbeliever all my life opposing Jesus, or perhaps I even put on a show of being a believer and yet did not truly uh, trust in the Lord. I trusted in myself or in my keeping of the law. I'm, and uh, so um, there is the, the shame on the one side. On the other side, there is rejoicing. And uh, you see, uh, obviously, we'd place the woman into the, the ones rejoicing and the others that are hearing Jesus and uh, trusting in him have been given faith to believe that he is uh, the fulfillment of uh, the prophecies. He's the Messiah. He's their savior. And so this great contrast between them, again, foreshadowing the last day, those that are on the right, those that are on the left, um, rejoicing and put to shame. I like the way that you, you tie that and see the tie that together with the context and see the, the foreshadow there of the eternal, because that really is what, what Jesus has been emphasizing very recently in the, in the context, this, you know, this division that he does bring between those who are faithful and believe and those who reject him. And, and here in the, the temporal reaction, the shame on the one hand of the, the unbelievers and the joy of those who receive the good news of Jesus, you do see a, a picture of that. And I, I think then inviting the reader of Luke, you and me and all who would read this gospel, to respond along with the believers to to rejoice, it, it reminds me, a lot of this interaction reminds me of what happens with the lawyer that 
ends up, you know, ask, he goes to Jesus wanting to, to know what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And then he wants to justify himself by asking who his neighbor is. And Jesus speaks of, of the good Samaritan there. And the way we talked about that, that text was, you know, we see in that a picture of the love that God has for us in Christ. And now here in Luke 13, we see a, a demonstration of the love that God has for us in Christ. And, and this reaction at the end of it, I, I think, you know, is and foreshadowing what's going to happen on the last day invites us as the readers of Luke to respond with the joy of the crowd rather than the shame of the unbeliever to recognize in Christ the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And and so that we today, as you've already said, in word and sacrament would receive that promised Sabbath rest now in those gifts and then finally on the last day in the joy of that rest eternal. Yeah, the... That's a, a great description of the Christian church, really. Um, just thinking about the day of Pentecost and the spirit is poured out and uh, suddenly in the tongues of all the people that are gathered, they're uh, proclaiming the wondrous things of God. Uh, and so very connected to this text, they're rejoicing at the glorious things that were done by Christ. And this is this is what we do each week uh, to to gather and to rejoice at these things um, as we receive them by faith, uh, forgiven, given the inheritance and uh, the promise of everlasting life. Uh, It it truly is rest. Uh, It's rest in Christ. It's uh, he says it's done. It's finished. I've done it all for you and I give it to you freely. Now, as Luke continues the narrative, Jesus tells a couple of parables, very short ones, one about a mustard seed, one about some leaven and some flour. And I think these are fairly familiar parables, but I think in my own mind, I'm used to, or I remember them in the context of where Matthew puts them. And there in Matthew 13, Matthew has them in a long series of parables, one after another, parables about the kingdom. Luke has them here, and he uses even the word therefore, which I think suggests that there's a connection between what's just happened and these parables. Can you, can you help draw that out? What's the, what is the, the move from this healing on the Sabbath day to now a couple of parables that are compar- talking about the kingdom of God? I'm with you in uh, my first response to this, that um, I'm used to these kind of being standalone parables that I, I wouldn't have necessarily thought as as being connected to this uh, particular episode but um, you're right the word therefore and the fact that um, after this Jesus is going to um, start moving going through different towns and villages but um, it seems to be simply a response uh, that Luke records as being um, very much connected to what has just happened so um, he ends up uh, telling Therefore, um, here's a parable about a mustard seed. Here's a parable about leaven. And um, in each of them saying, what's the kingdom of God like? So what shall I compare it? Well, kingdom of God's like a mustard seed. It's like this leaven. And um, whereas Matthew and Mark have um, a few things that are slightly different, uh, very, very small things like that they emphasize uh, the smallness of the seed um, and uh, Luke doesn't quite as much highlight that uh, and um, where the seed is planted rather than in his garden um, Matthew ends up saying that it's um, 
in the field, Mark says it's on the earth, um, but that overall, um, these parables end up summing up what we have just seen. So how does that play out? Well, we've just seen Jesus, uh, who is the Lord, the Lord of the Sabbath, and clearly has uh, power over this demon. He's the Lord of demons. Um, he's over Satan. Um, he's the one who's come to release that um, he's the king and the kingdom has come. And so it's very appropriate to hear parables about the kingdom and what it's like. Um, and even though Luke seems to um, maybe sidestep or not specifically speak about how tiny the mustard seed is compared to all other seeds like Matthew and Mark do, um, nevertheless, um, there is still a, a smallness, a, a humble nature to what everything looks like at this point. And yet uh, for those that have ears to hear, uh, for those that have eyes to see, that uh, clearly Jesus is um, Lord over all and that uh, he has come and uh, he's bringing his kingdom in as he's on his way to the cross, where ultimately he will reign through his mercy, uh, his bloodshed for the for reconciling the world to himself. All right. So that sets these two parables about the kingdom of God. The king is here. He's doing his kingly acts, setting free this woman from Satan. Now we're going to talk more about what this kingdom is like through these two parables. Take us in into the some of the details. Both of these are relatively short. They they seem to have a, a lot of similarities, but maybe there are some some unique points to each. Take take us into these two parables, the details that we need to to pay attention to, and the the way that Jesus makes the point that he's making. Okay, so the the first parable about the mustard seed. Um, Jesus says it's like a grain of mustard seed. The man takes it, sows it in his garden. It grows and becomes a tree, and then the birds of the air make nests in its branches. Um, and so um, reading a, several different commentaries on this, uh, there's one perspective that sees a difference in this versus the leaven, in that this is um, like God sending his son, um, that uh, this is being planted amidst his own people, specifying in his garden, um, among his people of Israel, that salvation comes from them, and that it's very visible growth um, going from this seed into this huge tree that, that everyone can see it, um, and an emphasis on the kingdom being living and active and growing, and uh, the tree uh, reminding us of passages like Psalm 1, a man who trusts in the Lord and whose delight is in the word of the Lord, being like a tree planted by streams of water, a leaf does not wither. Jeremiah also echoes this, um, that a man is like, uh, who trusts in the Lord is like a tree planted by water, doesn't worry about heat or drought, it always bears fruit. But contrast that to the leaven that um, is um, often described in a negative way. Um, in fact, Jesus has just said um, that uh, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And we often hear that, um, that um, in a negative way, speaking about hypocrisy or false teaching, but not here. Um, Jesus is actually, um, I think it, it shows just what a, a contrast this is. He's just dealt with the hypocrisy of the ruler and of the Pharisees. 
but he says the kingdom of God is actually um, in a good sense like leaven. And so whereas the seed of the mustard seed uh, grows into this very visible tree for everyone to see, that the leaven um, is tucked away and is much more of an invisible um, kind of a, a secret. You can't quite see it working. Um, nevertheless, it is. It's um, growing and leavening um, all of these loaves. So um, this then could potentially be seen as uh, the gospel entrusted to the church. Um, and perhaps that being why there is the man that sows the seed in the first one and then the woman, uh, the bride of Christ, um, as uh, the church. And so the church then is entrusted with the gospel, proclaims the gospel. It looks small and um, and you can hardly even see it. And nevertheless, there is this uh, rejoicing that comes to the church and to all the world because we see the glorious things that the Lord continues to do. He continues to forgive sins. He continues to call people into his kingdom. Um, and we're tempted, um, perhaps like with uh, this leaven working slowly through, we're tempted to take it into our own hands to maybe change some things. But um, no, the Lord promises um, you plant, I will give the growth. Uh, you proclaim, uh, you place the leaven in. I will make it grow. So with these two parables then, and I, I like the way that you, you pull out some some uniqueness from each one, particularly, you know, the man taking the seed, sowing in his garden, maybe, and that being a more visible thing, thinking about the way that Jesus brings the kingdom in these visible ways that we are seeing here, and then the more hidden nature of the woman, the church proclaiming the gospel, that sometimes it's not as easy to see the effects of that. What's the... Is what, what's the force of these parables, particularly in the context? I mean, I'm thinking of the people rejoicing at the glorious things being done at that time. Jesus now tells these two parables. How's, how's that hitting them? It, it seems that, that there's a note of hope, kind of like, keep looking for me, Jesus saying, keep looking for me to, to bring the kingdom. Even, you know, even though it starts small, it is going to grow. And then keep watching as the church proclaims. You may not always see the growth, but the growth is happening. The word will work. It seems like there's a, a note of encouragement, of, of hope to those people who are rejoicing to keep watching, to keep looking for the ways that Jesus brings the kingdom now visibly and then invisibly through the church as a, I don't know, an encouragement to, to stay faithful to, and, and maybe to, to tie it even larger to the context, to keep going on this journey with him in faith. Yeah, and I I can see those things too, and I I think that it, it even ties in with this uh, Sabbath theme that we've had in this text, that that is what the Sabbath does for the church, um, that it continues to grant us the knowledge of God. Um, it continues to uh, fill us with the hope, uh, the sure and certain hope of that eternal rest that is ours in Christ and that is to come uh, to be known fully on the day of his return. And um, that um, there is, I think, a lot of times a discouragement by Christians today and perhaps uh, even even then in their circumstances as um, Israel um, thinking that, well, all these things were, were promised to us, but here we are occupied by the Romans. Um, nothing seems to be going our way. And here we are today um, thinking, 
boy, we see all these rural churches shrinking and, uh, and we see the statistics and boy, the kingdom is just suffering. Um, but we have this promise from Christ. I am not going to forsake you. The word that I have is not going to um, be taken away. Uh, it's going to continue to endure. It will endure forever. And the kingdom is mine. I'm the king and I will not leave you or forsake you. Um, we also have the promise that um, even though it is not as visible to us, that the kingdom um, it is not shrinking. Um, it is always increasing because we think of the kingdom in eternal terms, the kingdom of glory, um, that for everyone who uh, repents and believes in the gospel and knows that Jesus has forgiven their sins, receives him in faith, that um, they have been um, brought into the kingdom and that those who have died in faith and are gathered with the saints in rest that um, they are part of the kingdom. So every new believer um, continues uh, to, um, as the kingdom grows, uh, to grow it, even though it may not be as visible to our eyes. So Jesus is asked, will, the king, will those who are saved be few? And he says, uh, well, there will be people from every corner of the earth. There will be a huge multitude. Um, so um, no, the kingdom will not be small. It will be um, large it will have uh, fully uh, matured on the day that Christ returns Pastor Walla with about two minutes left help us to, to wrap this text up summarize give us the good news from this part of Luke 13 this is such a wonderful text that uh, helps us to see Jesus as the Lord and um, that Jesus as Lord uses his authority and his power for us that he uh, shows that he has authority to teach. He has the authority over the Sabbath um, and that he is Lord of the Sabbath and uses it to do the very thing that the Lord would have for us. He pushes back the effects of sin for this woman. Um, he pushes back and casts out this unclean spirit, this disabling spirit. He's Lord over the demons. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's come to set the captives free. He's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And since the day of Jesus' resurrection, it is the year of the Lord's favor. It is today. It is right now. God's grace is for us now. And ultimately, um, Jesus is the king. And the kingdom of God has come. It will continue to grow. It will continue to grow despite hostility and hatred from the world because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It tells of the love and the compassion of God who sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to set us free from our sins. He set this woman free from the bondage to Satan. And by Jesus' death, you are released. You are forgiven. And because Christ has been raised and ascended into heaven, we straighten up like this woman was straightened up and able to finally stand, not bent over. We lift up our heads. We wait for his return with sure and certain hope because the Sabbath rest is coming. The resurrection of the body, life everlasting. And so we rejoice. Pastor John Walla is pastor at Bethel Lutheran Church in Bismarck, North Dakota. 
helping us today with Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 21. Pastor Walla, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke 13 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.